short on advice. Paul is going to give in just 13 verses, 30 plus pieces of advice. And so I thought that we would read the scripture passage together uh, so that we might hear it more clearly and we do it by sections. So I'm going to call you section one, you section two, you section three, and you section four. And uh, you'll notice what uh, scripture passage your section is reading because it's going to change colors. So we're going to start, I think, with blue section one. Will you read with me? Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord. Section two, your uh, green, read with me. Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Section three, read with me. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then section four, read with me. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. You can have a seat. In the year 1739, a group came to John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, and they were asking his advice on how they should specifically organize their lives as Christians. After a period of prayer and discernment, Wesley decided what would be best would be to have a weekly gathering. And they did this on Thursday nights for advice, some might call it preaching, and prayer. And the gathering was called a society among the Methodists. And as it grew, the society was subdivided into what we would call smaller groups, what they called classes. And three expectations were put forth for those who wanted to be a part of a society and a class. And those three expectations were this. Do no harm. Do good. And stay in love with God. These became the three general rules of the United Methodist Church. And for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about each one of them. So today we're talking about do no harm. Bishop Reuben Job wrote a book on these three general rules, and in the book he said about do no harm, it's applicable to everyone at every stage of life, and it's not complicated. Even a child can understand it. Seems simple enough to me, do no harm. Do we really need a reminder, much less a rule for life? I remember teaching something like do no harm, to my children when they were toddlers using words like, we don't hit, we don't grab, we don't throw sand. 
I said those things to them with very good intentions. I meant them. However, I do wonder if my toddlers had been a little more jaded and if they had had a working knowledge of sarcasm, if they went and looked back at me and said, oh, really, we don't? We don't throw sand? (laughs) My family sees me the most. They see me when I'm unguarded and when I'm tired, when I let my reptile brain do the thinking and I just react. There are plenty of times in my house where sand is thrown. Barbara Brown Taylor tells a story from her own family, a story about a birthday party of her young nephew named Will. He was just a year old, and she wrote about him. He wasn't spoiled yet because he hadn't learned to manipulate love for his own ends. He just thought everyone was loved the way that he was, and he gave it away as fast as he got it. After the cake and the singing and the presents, Will let the family know how pleased he was by doing a dance. He twirled in place. The family, the adults, were circled around him admiring his dance when Jason, a seven-year-old neighbor, couldn't stand it anymore. He charged through the circle of adults. He put his hands on Will's chest and he shoved him. Will fell hard hitting first his rear end and then his head with a crack. He cried, but not for long, because his mother rushed over, hugged him, helped him to his feet. And the first thing that Will did was to totter over to Jason and put his arms around him and put his head on his chest. The best part of the story is Barbara Brown Taylor's reaction to the incident. She said, I couldn't stand it. For his next birthday, I thought I'd buy him a BB gun or some iron knuckles, or a karate video for toddlers. He's going to have to learn to defend himself, or he's going to eat dirt on the playground, right? Not only is that my gut reaction, defend and protect, I often believe it. The source of my strong belief, I think, lies somewhere deep within my brain, hidden under layers of cerebral cortex. In 1955, psychologist Daniel Goleman coined the phrase amygdala hijack, and he taught that an amygdala hijack happens when stress causes the reptile brain or the amygdala to disable the frontal lobes of the brain, and the fight or flight response is activated. Goleman is also the psychologist that popularized the concept of emotional intelligence. And so a person with a high emotional intelligence recognizes and manages their own emotions and then seeks to understand and influence the emotions of others in healthy ways and positive ways. Basically, people with high emotional intelligence are people who do no harm. The way to get a higher emotional intelligence is first to recognize, to recognize when your thinking brain has been hijacked, and to take a break, to pause, to walk away. And then the second thing that you can do is to pray, to meditate, and also some good rational thought never hurts. It might sound crazy to think about the Apostle Paul as having a high emotional intelligence, because that phrase never would have been used in the first century. 
But as I read Romans chapter 12, I would categorize that advice as being incredibly emotionally mature. He starts chapter 12 of Romans with the words, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then in verse 9, the first verse we read was, let love be genuine and don't repay evil for evil but take thought for what is noble in the sight of everyone. This is wisdom that comes from some prayer and some reflection. And we know that the transformation in Paul's life is dramatic. When he's first introduced to us in Acts chapter 9, the scripture says that he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples. So there's a big change in him from violence and vengeance to genuine love. And you might say to me, well, Dinah, he saw Jesus. (laughs) He saw Jesus right there on the road to Damascus, and you'd be right. I wondered this week, what exactly is it about Jesus? What is it that instructs and informs Paul's advice? Now, as a good Wesleyan, I think that what happened to Paul can be wrapped up in the word grace or the theological concept of grace what Paul would call genuine love. He says, let love be genuine. And the Greek there that gets translated into genuine could also be translated into unhypocritical. Let love be unhypocritical. Don't be a hypocrite about how you love and who you love. Allow the love that you have experienced in God that you have experienced to be true about God, to seep into every part of who you are and every way that you live. And so if God is love, so am I. Let love be genuine. One commentary that I read said, Paul is recommending life under the structuring power of grace. So that grace then becomes our skeleton. Grace becomes the bones of who we are Grace is to be the directing force of our day-to-day life. So with every twist and bend in the path, what would unhypocritical love do? What would genuine love say about this? Now, neither Paul nor Wesley would deny the reality of evil or say that we should ignore evil or go soft on evil. Theologian N.T. Wright says, We believe in a creator God who made a very good and lovely world, and anything that defaces, anything that distorts or damages or spoils is the opposite of good. It is evil. So Paul is simply saying, I think, don't sign on with evil. Do no harm. My real enemy isn't the person or the group that pushes me down. The real enemy is what rises up in me and says, push back. That's the hook. That's where I'm vulnerable. Without a moment's pause, some time to cool off, pray, and think rationally, I reach for a handful of sand. And then I become a part of that cycle of harm. Barbara Brown Taylor preached, evil is never satisfied with controlling one side of the situation. Its goal is to infect everyone involved, the bully and the victim, the plaintiff and the defendant, the offender and the offended. And so the best advice I think I can give 
is to do all that you can to step out of that cycle of harm. Do all that you can to step out of the circulation of harm. Certainly set boundaries when necessary. Keep the vulnerable yourself included safe. But don't throw sand. Don't throw sand. I spent some time this week worrying about the coronavirus. (laughs) And this passage and this principle changed my focus. To don't be vulnerable to the deadliest and most contagious virus of all. Paul wrote, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I admit, Paul's advice is difficult. And I want you to know that I think it was difficult for the time in which he wrote it. It was certainly very different uh, from many of his contemporaries. The Maccabean martyrs were faithful Jewish brothers. There were seven of them, and they all went to their death, each one of them calling down curses on the one who persecuted them. And that was just two centuries before Paul. But Paul's life, Paul's perspective has been changed by Jesus the Christ because Jesus taught differently and he did differently. Remember Jesus' words from the cross in Luke's gospel? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Alexander Shia called these words of Jesus a new social doctrine, a powerful challenge. My New Testament professor teaches that one of the main themes of the letter to the Romans is God's impartiality. God's unhypocritical love, God's impartiality, God's love for everyone. It's available, it's accessible to everyone is a theme throughout that letter. And yet we tend to focus on the words in Romans that tell us who's in and who's out. And words of God's wrath and vengeance, words like vengeance is mine, vengeance belongs to God, you better look out. When read in context, we read it this morning, I see God saying, give me that toy. No grabbing. I'm going to put it right here out of your reach. Because you and I both know what God does with vengeance. What do we do when we are wronged? Well, what did God do about it? It's the story of the cross. That's both our model And it's our challenge as well. I've written a covenant uh, from the book by uh, Bishop Reuben Job about doing no harm. And I'm going to give you just a few seconds to read over these words. And then if you can make them your own, then I'll just invite you to read them with me. But study them for a minute. Make sure that you agree with them. Okay, if you can, would you read them with me? I will do no harm. I will be on guard so that my actions and my silence will not add injury to another of God's children or any part of God's creation. 
I will determine every day that my life will be invested in the effort to bring healing instead of hurt, wholeness instead of division, and harmony with the ways of Jesus rather than the ways of the world. I will do no harm. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, we do not want to be conformed to this world, but we seek to be transformed in the ways of Jesus the Christ. So would you renew our minds? Would you settle our spirits when we need to be settled and release our grasp on control? Inspire us, Holy Spirit, to do good work. Amen.